I was super interested in writing songs that were intentionally to be misinterpreted. This is Champagne is also a band podcast. One songwriter, one song. I'm Sven, your host for a journey into the music of Champaign-Urbana. Recorded in the Blue Box studio with a songwriter from the Champaign-Urbana music scene, past or present. Champagne is also a band podcast is proud to be a part of the Champagne Showers podcast network. Welcome to Champagne is also a band podcast. Today I have Rick Valentin. You may know Rick from such bands as Poster Children, Salary Man, and Thoughts Detecting Machines. Rick, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure. Rick, today you chose He's My Star off of the album Junior Citizen. This song is from the album uh, junior Citizen from 1995. I have to say I'm very curious about your thoughts on why this was your favorite song you wanted to talk about today. But without further ado, let's listen to the song. I am on the beach Looking for the thief that stole my heart from under me Let it drift to sea Welcome back, Rick. My first and favorite question to ask is, what came first? Was it the music or was it the lyrics? Oh, always the music in our bands with Poster Children. I think maybe I wrote a couple songs very early on in the band. And then Rose and I wrote songs together. Like I'd play on acoustic guitar and I'd have all the lyrics written out. But it was always music first. But then... Pretty soon after the band started, there was a really early song, I think called Question, which was us just jamming in the attic of the house we were living in. And I just started singing words over the jam, and that became much better than what I was writing. Mm. And so that pretty much from then on has been the method with Poster Children since then, which is that we come up with music. Some of it's from improvisation. Sometimes somebody brings in a riff, and then we build it out, and I scat sing over it and then i fill in the lyrics later i do keep track of interesting snippets possible chorus or titles of songs and sometimes i'll i'll put that in to an existing piece of music if i can't think of something i don't think i ever sat down and wrote lyrics like saying oh i'm gonna i'm gonna write some words and put them to music i've never done that i have written down oh you know, Scooby Dooby Doo. Oh, that's that's a good. I, I'm going to remember that. That might be good to put in a song when I can't think of a chorus, right? Right. <laughs> that's not one of them, but that's that's an example. I'll have little bits and pieces, snippets, little notes, like maybe a couplet, I guess, or a rhyme scheme about something. But for the most part, it usually starts with me scatting over the song and seeing what comes out. I guess it's the speaking in tongues method. That's like that Talking Heads record. And actually, Remain in Light's like that too. I think a lot of those lyrics came out of David Byrne making up stuff, making sounds, and then slowly they turned into words. I usually 
make sounds until I come up with an idea. If I go blah, 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 I don't listen back and then try to figure out what those words are. It's more about the rhythm, and then I can start plugging in words into the rhythm. In fact, what happened with He's My Star, I remember it vividly, actually, as we were in a loft up in Champaign where we rehearsed and lived. It was kind of behind where the original Blind Pig was on Main Street, so the other side of the block. And we were working on new songs, and I had that riff. I just had <laughs> the riff that the song is. There's no no changes, really. It's just the same thing looping over and over again. And I had that, and I started singing. And then I sang in a very kind of lighthearted way. I sang, I am on the beach looking for the thief that stole my heart away from me. And I was kind of singing in a smarmy kind of romantic way and my brother laughed the guitarist and i was like oh i made jim laugh i better work on this and that's kind of the origins of it but then it spun out into something much more complex lyrically i'm picturing because of the way that the song rolls out the parts you have that original riff did you actually do this on the acoustic first I'm trying to think if I had an acoustic then. I, I didn't have an acoustic guitar for many years, and I feel like it's entirely possible. Maybe I had just bought an acoustic. <laughs> so it's a little strange. I had been in a band, and we had made records for quite a few years before that. Yeah, I think I must have... Yeah, that must be... Actually, yeah, that's probably what happened is, is I bought an acoustic guitar. And so that's probably where that riff came from, is mm. that I... I I actually had my first nice acoustic guitar. I mean, I learned on an acoustic, but it kind of exploded. And then I got an electric guitar. I didn't play the acoustic forever. I had a, a weird electric 12 string that could work as an acoustic. But yeah, so it's possible I wrote it on the weird electric 12 string. But regardless, it seems like an acoustic-y kind of song mm. initially. I'm curious. It sounded like the way that songs get formed within the poster children is that there's an idea musically that's presented and then everyone kind of fills in their parts. The thing that I like, and I, I, so I'm correct in that, is that you, you nodded. That's yeah. why I was, okay. Yes. Um, yes. <laughs> I didn't want to go down this rabbit hole and not, no, and no, not, no. but, but the no. thing that I like about this song is there's that intro of the acoustic theme and then the interlacing of the different parts that overlap it and then change. I mean, some of the things that are happening in the bass are almost parallel, you know, parallel octaves happening. But then later in another verse, that part comes in and it's actually changing the harmonics, the the chords that are actually being represented there because the bass is going. And I always love that type of interaction because it's one of the things that makes music so interesting is like if i were to speak and say the same thing over and over and over and over without any change it would be boring but like musically when there's a theme that goes through it and then the things that change around it make the effect or make the emotional context change i think is really fascinating i think in some ways it runs as kind of this metaphor for what you're trying to say so if we're going to jump into the lyrics you said that the first line for you was the i am on the beach looking for the thief that stole my heart from under me when did the idea of this person who is he's my star when did that theme come into being and then when did that evolve into this story that pieced everything together i'm actually not sure i think probably it started 
yeah, once I had the beach thing, then I was like, where am I going to go with this? And so I actually listened to the Angie episode last mm. night, Angie Heaton episode. And she said, oh, don't, what was it? Her brother told her, don't. Oh yeah, don't brother? tell people what it really told her means. <laughs> what it really is about. Our A&R guy at the record label really loved this song. And then I told him what it was about. And he completely 180 on the song, <laughs> is what I remember. And then I tried to explain it in more detail to make him realize. So, the idea of the song, it goes from sounding like if I explain it, I, if I explain, I'm trying to figure out a way to explain it well. It's people get a pretty emotional response to the song, I feel like. And then if I tell them what it's about, they're disappointed. Hmm. But then I try to go a little further. And explain how it it does have resonance, even though it's about this person. So maybe I'll preload with that explanation. Okay. So, oh, go ahead. Yeah. No, no. You. Oh. Well, I was going to say maybe maybe I should. Maybe it would be fair for me to give my interpretation because and and I know that this. Well, hopefully, hopefully this is completely different from what your intention was because I always I, I am absolutely fascinated by the idea of having your intent and my impression coexist in my brain while I'm listening to it, which it's like <laughs> somehow our minds are able to do that, right? Like you can you can interpret both at the same time and consume it that way. My original thought is this person that is the, he's my star. I thought about, you know, the way that we use the word star, like sometimes we see the star as something that guides us out in the sea, which you make a lot of water references, etc., things that guide us like the star. And then also, you know, star is something that we, you know, when we say someone's a movie star, we put all sorts of grandeur on them. And so, the way that I kind of interpreted this, the weird thing is, is that I think that the timeline, well, okay, so the first verse happens latest in the timeline which is interesting, which I was thinking about because the point at which you are right now, but everything else is looking backwards. So, because I think about you're on the beach looking for the thief that stole your heart from under you. Um, and I imagine that oh, you, yeah, yeah. You, you're out yeah. and maybe you get caught up by these waves and this person that you looked up to in high school and you knew... I interpret as someone who graduated and then you never saw them again, but then you go, I mean, I'm almost taking this a little too literally of this idea of you get swept out to sea and somehow you just happen to be in the same place as this person and they save your life, which, you know, I said that's a little, I almost take it a little too literal, but the fact that in the final, the verse three, the final line of, without a clue that soon our paths would cross is that after this person had left high school, you'd never thought you would see them again, but when you needed somebody, they were there and they saved your life, I guess. I'm saved when a familiar face comes crashing through the waves. And so, I imagine that that's this person. You had the film trick about this where it's like, you're starting to tell the story at the end of the story. That was my broad strokes of my interpretation. But I'm kind of curious if if you wanted to expand on that. 
a lot of what you said, it touches on all the things that I wanted or I was working on in that song, like I was trying to hit. So, and, and yeah, I, I didn't even realize the kind of flashback or flash. Yeah, yeah, there's, there's kind of a flashback in the song. And it's, it's also making me realize, I mean, I do try to do sometimes with songs, do some kind of overarching narrative, right? So that the narrative moves along. And then I, I feel like sometimes what I do is a little simplistic and then, but you explaining that where it's like, Oh, it has a flashback. It's a little more advanced narrative going on there. So that, that actually makes me feel good. I mean, maybe when I was writing it, I knew what I was doing, but, but I think I've sung it so much and I'm on autopilot when mm-hmm. I sing it. I haven't actually spent a lot of time in the past. What, how long has it been now? 25 years? Um, <laughs> what, I, I believe I 28 the math. is the magic number. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't thought as much about it. So this is, this is interesting. And the stuff about stars and, and famous people, I, that's an important part of it. So, well, I should stop being coy and I should say what it's about. So, my brother and I went to a high school in the Chicago suburbs called Lions Township High School. Mm. David Hasselhoff went to that high school years before, not the same time, 10 or 15 years before us. And so, the long story is, <laughs> so first off, singing something about swimming and everything like that, that's David Hasselhoff. I think probably making my brother laugh, and it was just thinking about my brother and myself, and then the fact that we had this history. And then also Mark Robinson from this band Unrest. Mm-hmm. He used to write these songs about these kind of super cool hipster people, like Kath Carroll. I'm trying to think of some of the other ones, but some of his songs were always like these really like little kind of micro stories about this famous person, musician, maybe, or not famous, but like cult musician, and then how they influence them. And I was like, oh, I'm going to do that, but I'm going to do it with somebody who's not cool, right? (laughs) And then I'm not going to tell people what I'm writing about. I'm going to use this person as a structure, right? As a method of doing that. And so I was also, at the time, super interested in misdirection. So kind of similar in the way of like, I'm not saying I'm, I'm going for this level of songwriting, but like Born in the USA or Every Breath You Take, like those songs got misinterpreted, right? They're super sort of, well, Born in the USA, right? Is a protest song, right? right? But no, everyone thinks of it as a patriotic song and Every Breath That You Take is a stalker song and everyone thinks it's a beautiful love song, right? I was super interested in writing songs that were intentionally to be misinterpreted. There's a poster children's song called New Boyfriend, where it's a guy kind of talking about how jealous he is of his ex's new boyfriend. And it's like all this stuff. But as you listen to it, you realize, oh, this is a really awful person, right? But somebody might just say, oh, this I, I love this song. It's about, you know, when you break up with someone and, and how much you hate their new boyfriend. And well, no, actually what I'm doing is I'm, I'm showing you that, you know, if you identify with this, you're an awful person <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah. Or it like slowly gets revealed as like, oh, this person's bad. I was interested in misdirection also. So not intentionally tricking people, but making people think that the song was about one thing, but doing it intentionally as opposed to those unintentional examples, right? Right. And so there's a mix of that in there. And it was also with the understanding that if I make it vague enough but if I put in some clues, maybe somebody will figure it out. But if somebody doesn't, it'll still be resonant. And so that's why I'm always a little wary of talking about it. But to wit, if that's the right way of using <laughs> that phrase. So the thing is, is that it's, it's very much to me, though, is that I was not happy in high school. I was not popular. I watched a huge amount of TV. I was really 
invested in people on the TV. And what you were saying about stars is that, that you can have these intense personal relationships with these people who don't know who you are, these stars. You can have a resonant relationship with them, right? And, and I mean, it's obvious now. I think maybe it was less obvious then, or it wasn't. It's always been obvious, right? It's about how personal at least one side of that relationship can be. And then really, it's just about how, you know, watching TV and seeing, <laughs> it sounds stupid when I say it, watching Knight Rider, you uh-huh. know, in high school, you know, and it's like, oh, this is really cool. And I feel like, and then that person you had this relationship with, you know, oh, this is a person that went to high school, the same high school as I did too. And it's like, oh, it's this famous person. And I have, you know, they have a similar experience to me and there's all these deeper connections. And then that person disappears for a while and then they came back and then there are a huge number of, not a huge number, but a good number of poster children songs that are about me being upset with myself for watching too much TV Mm. and kind of like how that was in some ways, the way I dealt with what I guess would now be called depression. But at the Mm. time it was just, I don't know. It's what I did. I watched a lot of TV. <laughs> yeah. Well, oh gosh. And and it's so funny to even think about why did, when I'm thinking about this, I'm like, no, 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 that's not right. That's not, I'm like completely remembering it wrong. But I'm like, as a kid, you know, as a younger human, I love Knight Rider. I thought it was great. And he was perfect in that. And I could, I can't imagine my childhood without it. Right. But then now I'm thinking about how from there he disappears and then he comes back in Baywatch, right? right like, right. and so, okay, so I didn't mis- misunderstand that, but that even makes this more funny to me, this idea that, you know, this person that comes to save you is David Hasselhoff from, <laughs> you know, Baywatch. Baywatch, So, yeah. <laughs> and it's, that's great. And I think it comes off as a joke, I think when I say that, like when I said that, that guy who was at our label and was really, really, you know, was like, is this a true story? Did you almost drown once and everything like that? I'm like, no. Huh. And then I finally told him and he was just, it. he was, you know, he was a uh, baby boomer. He was really invested. There was no postmodernism or irony mm. in his way of interpreting that. It was like, he felt like it was just a big joke. And then I tried to explain to him, no, it's not a big joke though. I'm, I'm the reason why it's, it's emotional and there's an emotional connection is because I'm talking about the power of these people to help us through. They can act as friends, right? Even, and, right. and, you know, plenty of people write songs about when that goes over too far. Right. So it's like, like fans, that's almost like a trope, right? It's like the fan who goes too far kind of song. Right. Right. And this is about, Oh, the positive side where it's like, Oh, these people can bring you joy or bring you back or even the nostalgia, you know, of like, Oh, I haven't seen, you know, Gabe Kaplan in 40 years. And then all of a sudden he shows up in this TV show. It's an old friend. It's kind of like hmm. seeing an old friends and, and those ideas. It's a lot more complex than just simply, oh, Rick's basically tricking everyone into thinking it's a really serious song, but it's not. And th- that's that was not my intent. Right. I feel like we, this is a whole rabbit hole we could go into. But honestly, when there's a show and there's an actor that you could look back on and say, I identify that with my younger self. I recognize that as something that I knew it would be on every, you know, Friday night. You know, I could tune in at seven o'clock, there'd be Knight Rider, and this would be something that represents something as a base of who I grew into be. 
Yeah. And then I think about that same actor being in something that is, I would, I would not say that that was a formative, you know, I wouldn't say Baywatch is a formative uh, show. Right, right. Yeah. I almost want to say in a lesser extent, it's that something that you grew up with and, and there's a lot of examples and I don't want to actually name the actor and maybe my hints will be enough where somebody that you grew up with, that you looked up to, that you thought was a great representation of who would be a good father, the all-American family turns out to be an absolute horrific human being. And, um, and I don't exactly. want to say, you know, so I, I'm just only hinting. I mean, there's enough examples in other places that it may not even be just that person. But at least with your story, it doesn't go to that extent. But there is that sense of like loss of childhood when a person you looked up to became something that you would not or was always this. But yeah, it's interesting to me that this is now coming up in my head. It's like, it's not just about the story. It's about that particular person and the changes from like what happened from them in high school to becoming an actor, then becoming an actor in another show. And what what you're saying is making me realize that really scary part of fame. So, you know, everybody talks about, I think, probably when they talk about songs it's like at least i i talk about it's like once i'm done with it you know and then other people interpret it and they add all of their thoughts and perspectives into it so that's the thing is a lot of times when people do talk about songs that i've written to me their interpretations are always better (laughs) i feel like are more complex right and it's like and you realize, oh, when you create something, it is, you know, it's, again, a trope. I put it out there in the world, and then it's no longer mine, right? That's always the idea of authorship and the artist, right? And it's like, oh, once you put it out there, you lose authorship, and, and it's shared authorship then, or it might even be like you don't, you're not even, you can't even claim authorship anymore. People are going to interpret it. And then realizing, wow, if you're an actor, and your physical self mm. is that... Wow. Can you imagine? And and then also, you know, just hearing stuff like, you know, when Bob Dylan said, oh, I didn't want to be the voice of a generation. It's like, yeah, he was like, and, and kind of like, you know, veered off where it was just like, I don't want to embody that. And it's like he created all this work, but then all of a sudden people started investing all of these grander ideas Mm. into him and responsibilities into him and he was like i don't i don't want to do that and so that to me is where you realize wow that's kind of the dark side of fame Mm. is how do you deal with the fact that it's not even that oh i wrote a song and then a bunch of white supremacists are using it or something right you know that would be bad right but if it's like oh i created this character and I, i played this character i didn't even create it and now a bunch of white supremacists like it and it's like but every time someone sees me now they think i'm a white supremacist it would be like that would totally mess with that i'm using an extreme example but it's like that would totally mess with you mentally and that's why fame is terrible and a difficult thing to deal with i guess and isn't that also the trick too is like what i create is not necessarily me it's like that is not how i identify it may be a way that you express who you are but it doesn't make it you I think sometimes people lose sight of that. The other flip side to that coin is the things you do outside of being the creative person, being the person that people look up to, does affect who you are and 
what people can look up to or not look up to. That would be very scary to me personally. As an as an introvert, <laughs> I I would not want exactly. anyone uh, to know anything more about me than I want them to know. Yeah, I'm in the same boat. In the same boat. Yeah. <laughs> On the sea. When you say without a clue that soon our paths would cross, with your interpretation, have you ever met David Hasselhoff? While we were on tour once, he was doing a mall tour. I think it actually was when we were playing Lollapalooza, actually. And then we found out he was doing a show in a mall. Kind of one of those things where he sings one song and people sign photos and everything like that. And so we went to the mall and we thought, and I think it was right around, yeah, it would have been a little after this record came out and Poster Children. This was a Poster Children yeah. thing. And we all go to the mall and we're thinking... We're going to give him a copy of the record, tell him it's about him. We're going to say, oh, two of the members of the band went to his high school, the same high school, everything like that. We'll have like this entree point. And then like we get there and there's a crowd, mm. obviously. And then he's taking questions from the crowd and a woman gets up and says, I went to high school with you. You know, someone was in the audience who actually went to Lions Township High School at the same time as him, like was in classes with him and everything. And then we're like, oh, Okay. It's not that, like, here's somebody who actually knew him in high school. Oh, but it was interesting. Also, he was ranting about radio and how he couldn't get his song on the radio, and we were kind of in the same situation. <laughs> we weren't ranting about it, but it was that, that era when bands like us could possibly at least be on, you know, the commercial alternative radio stations. It was a weird moment because it was like, oh, David Hasselhoff has the same problem we do. No, never, never met him face to face. Although I think Rose may have given him the CD at that event. So yeah, never, never met him sort of in any direct way. Uh, actually, that that yielded a, I think a great, <laughs> great story. Thank you for sharing that. You know what? I'm I'm looking at this and I I want to just talk about the line where I give away the whole thing. Mm. I think. Yeah. Yeah. That I'm actually looking back at the lyrics externally as if I didn't write them. And I thought, oh, that's that's kind of good. And so there's a couple of lines in the song. Before he learned to swim, uh -huh. a voice would come to him on night rides, right? So a voice would come to him on night rides. Faceless William, which is William Daniels, who did the voice of Knight Rider. Elsewhere known as Mark. So his character was Dr. Mark something in St. Elsewhere. So elsewhere known as Mark. And the father of Benjamin, he was actually Dustin Hoffman's father in The Graduate. And so that's the, that's all pre-IMDB. So that was just, wow. that's like my movie obsession encapsulated in one thing where I was like, oh, this is a spoiler. Like anyone reading those lyrics is going to know that I'm talking about David Hasselhoff. And I, I, I feel like now that I look at it, I go, oh, wow, that's, that's pretty cryptic. <laughs> Well, okay. So, do you remember what? Do you remember what the acronym for Kit stood for? <laughs> oh, I wish I did. Uh, Night Industries, something. It's a it's a number, which is so funny. <laughs> oh, Night Industries. No, I can't. Two thousand. Pull it out of my brain. Two thousand. Right? Really? That's like, what T T's? You used the last oh. two T's to say two thousand. <laughs> so it's K. <laughs> oh, that's terrible. Yeah. That's see now you've spoiled everything for me. Oh, sorry. It's like, well, I, that's a spoiler. Well, I always. No, I mean, it's just like wow. They couldn't think of anything better. Like tactical <laughs> something. Right. Like tactical transport. 
There you go. Yeah, exactly. Um, there you go. That that took what? How long did that take you to come up with? That was that was yeah. They could have done that in the writing room, right? But if you if you remember, it it always seemed like if they wanted something to be futuristic, they always made it two thousand. Yeah. So that's like yeah, you know, in the year two thousand. Oh man, you're you're giving me all sorts of like flashbacks. I'm thinking I'm like, remember when they decided to go ahead and give David Hasselhoff a goatee, and he was like his evil brother. <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, evil and twin episode and cars. Yeah. You know, you always had to have the evil. Like, <laughs> why didn't they put that. a goatee on that car? Right, the car exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, oh man, just the memories. And even when you say, "I saw him every week," you know, on TV, you know, driving down the street, a yeah. savior in a brand new car, shining like a star. That it's. Wow, verse two, like just laid it all out. That's crazy. I, you know, and I, it's right there. I never made that correlation. That's that's amazing. And I think it's a good thing you didn't. I think I think the song is much better without all of these reveals. Actually, I think it's in a way I realized. Oh, I was using this as a sort of structure or a foundation to build this much more, you know, sort of interesting lyrical and emotional piece right and and realizing that i i do like systems and i like system art I like art that's built from systems or has structure and that's why i like songwriting is better than just writing writing which is painful to me is that there are boxes and units and a structure that i can plug stuff into and so for me realizing now too is that oh that's was just an initial sort of conceit that i used to build the song because i <laughs> i had to write a lot of songs write a, l- a lot of lyrics that's the downside of this method the way we approached songwriting in the band is that we'd write a ton of music at that time because we were just doing the band full-time we were lucky to do the band full-time so we'd have these kind of marathon sessions where we just kind of pound out these songs and arrange them but then i'd have to write words uh, and so it was like how am i going to write another song i need something to build a new song on because lyrics were always the, the hardest part for me huh it manages to be cryptic and meaningful i love your original interpretation in the mix i mentioned this earlier as much as i love the lyrics and i am pleased with how the energy just pulls into the chorus but yet you're still you still have that that riff that you're talking about playing throughout the you know throughout that part but you're using the instrumentation around it to keep it moving forward that really is a demonstration of what I think is my favorite part of this is that it has that theme running throughout and yet the way that the music goes is it's like it explores all the opportunities that you could take with that musically so it's like there's there's um the drums come in and and all of a sudden there's this new energy impulsion in there some of the bass lines that rose is doing change the way that you interpret the chords that are being or the sonic sound overall rather than just doubling she's also adding in other parts a different version of chords and inversions of those chords so it just to me i find the simplicity but then an additional complexity because of the exploration being my favorite part in in this piece um so in turn I'd like to see what what's your favorite part of this song? Well, yeah, yeah, I think you kind of hit upon that is because a lot of poster children songs were or are built out of riffs 
Yeah, I think I think that's what I, I like about it in general is just that it works with just the single riff going through it, but then we modify it or alter. I play the same thing pretty much through the whole song, and I just hit my distortion pedal. Like when we play it live, mm. I'm realizing now on the recording, yeah, it does have the acoustic guitars, but really, yeah, so I think the original way we wrote it and the way it was in the band was is like electric guitar clean and then electric guitar with a pedal. I never move my hand, really. I just move my fingers. That minimalism, but then the song is complicated out of that minimalism, and it's something that we explored a lot, and it's kind of a rut, I would say, in some ways I'm in, where I, I, I do like very loopy, kind of repetitive music that has parts come in and out, and so this was, yeah, an example of where that, that was successful, mm. and people liked it, right? Yeah. I mean, because I know we had other songs around that time that just had the same riff over and over again, but at some point we had we would have to put in another chord. I know there's a video somewhere of this uh, song from, what, our second record called Water, and initially that song only had one. It was basically in D and was just the riff over and over again. And then I remember Bob the drummer said, it needs another chord. And it's like... <laughs> What about this chord? And then we put it in and it was even better. The song was even better. Oh, okay. Yeah, we, we should put in a second chord. And that, that happened a number of times where it was like, okay, we got we to put in another chord, another part, right? We can't just do the same part over and over again. Whereas, yeah, he's my star. We got away with it mm. without having to put in another part. And that to me is what I like about it. The reason why I picked it in general was because I think my voice sounds good on it. I've never liked my voice and I always struggle with how I sound on record and recording. And I go back to that song often and try to figure out, even in terms of like microphones, I wish I could remember what microphone mm. and what <laughs> what outboard gear it was run through. And it's just like, it's almost like my ideal voice in my mind even though i listened back a while ago and i heard i could on really good speakers and i could hear okay i'm starting to hear where it's sketchy right mm. so i'm even unraveling that i can't even you know listen to that song and go oh this is a goal to try to recapture this moment and so that's that's the other thing about it is it feels it's one of the few songs that i think when i listen to it i go oh okay I, instead of saying oh i wish we had done that or Ooh, this doesn't sound like, oh there's that voice again you know it's like i i can actually listen to it without getting neurotic hmm. or psychotic you know because i don't listen back to the music unless i have to relearn the songs this is one of the few that i at least use as a reference to kind of calibrate yeah a bunch of different things Honestly, maybe this isn't my podium to stand, but, you know, I think that a lot of musicians that are starting up that are scared to record because they don't like the sound of their voice, but they want to to make music, they want to create things, hearing you have doubts about your own voice when you keep making music and people continue to love it, I think that a lot of people should take that to heart. Just get it out there, just make it happen you know, sometimes people get afraid that people won't like their voice or, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I hope you know what I'm trying to say, but it's just like, I, oh, I, yeah. want, I want more people to be like, I know, I know this demo isn't 100%, but I feel like people need to hear this because, I don't know, sometimes it's it's neat to see people go from the initial stages of something being created to its final iteration I don't know. I find that really inspiring. But anyway, you you were going to say something. Yeah, I was, I was just going to say, I mean, I've been actively trying, like, I, you know, I teach college students. I, I say this about the creative process, too. It's just like, it's not about joy. 
and especially for, for me, you know, and it's like, but also talking to other people, it's like, it's hard. It's more like a relationship is what I've been saying lately is that, yeah, I mean, there are good things about it, but then you have arguments with your creative that that it's kind of like a, an extra person you're married to or that's in your family or that you have a constant relationship is your creative muse or whatever you want to call it. And it's like not a hundred percent joyful relationship. It's a complicated relationship. Mm-hmm. And so the doubt and the frustration, but even from like, I, I talk about this about technical stuff too. It's like, I've got 40 years of experience with computers and programming, but I still you know, at least once a week, I run into a situation where I think, oh, I've done it. I've worked myself into a corner and I've created a problem that I can't fix mm-hmm. and that my knowledge is incapable of. It's like those problems have become more complex and I have more experience dealing with them. But the fear, the frustration, the sense of failure, <laughs> all of that still, I still have that. And yeah, it's the same with the creative process. It's mm-hmm. just like, ugh. And then it always goes back to me like, well, why are you doing this? And <laughs> And there's always that question, too, that comes up pretty regularly. But I also know that, well, I'm not happy when I don't do it either, or I just wind up doing it anyways, and I go back to writing songs and, you know, and it, it just, just happens, and it's something I do, and it's probably the way I, it's a coping mechanism, and it's the way I communicate or try to communicate mm-hmm. with the world. You know, I, I do have bouts of introspection. In fact, I, yeah, the new one is is like, I think maybe... Somebody told me that something I did, like I played a song or I wrote, wrote a poem or something and I got positive feedback mm. in an environment where I never got that. <laughs> and then it's like, oh, I'm going to do this because somebody said they liked it. It looks like it's entirely possible. It's just like one person said that to me and it just kind of stuck and I just continued doing it. And that was the, the thing, my, uh, yeah, my complicated relationship with creativity. It's mm. the, the dark one that it just threw at me this time where it's like, it's entirely possible that the reason why you do this is not because it's something that you're good at or that you're born to do. <laughs> it's because at some point someone gave you a pat on the head and you just ran with that. You grabbed that little moment of positive reinforcement and have, you know, spent your whole life, your whole creative life on that. That's that that really freaked me out when I went there. <laughs> but it's it's like it's there's this book called The War of Art, you know, about how everything is conspiring against you to, you know, get your creative work done. Like even people who love you, right? It's just like, they don't want to see you suffering. They don't want to see, you know, and they say, why don't you quit doing that? Mm-hmm. And it's like, everything is a battle kind of a way. And, and I'm realizing I'm, I, I do that to myself too. And I think, I think that's in the book. It's been a long time since I read the book, but it's just like, ugh, it's never a 100% positive experience. A relationship. I'm calling it a relationship now. Yeah. Music. Yeah. Champagne is also a band podcast is proud to support Jubilee Cafe. Jubilee Cafe is a free weekly meal program at Community United Church of Christ, 805 South 6th Street in Champaign, Illinois. Jubilee Cafe serves a home-cooked meal from 5 to 6.30 each Monday. Their mission is to feed hungry people by cooking healthy, delicious meals and by serving their guests restaurant-style with servers waiting on tables. Jubilee Cafe is open to anyone who cares to eat with them. Because food insecurity among students is so high, they serve students as well as others in and around the Champaign-Urbana community who struggle with hunger. Meals are free to all and will be served each Monday evening. Located in the accessible lower level of the building, 
at 6th and Daniel Streets in Champaign. For more information on the meal or how to volunteer, go to the Jubilee Cafe CUCC Facebook page or email them at jubilee.cafe at community-ucc.org. That's jubilee.cafe at community-ucc.org. Welcome back. So, Rick, do you have any favorite Champaign-Urbana venues, past or present? Yeah, I was thinking about this, and, and it's a strange one. Oh, now I'm trying to decide between two. So, these were two mid-80s places. So, there was Tritos Uptown, which was kind of up above, what was the White Hen? I don't, is that building even there? Now, all that's been torn down even. There was a White Hen pantry, and then there was a, a sandwich shop called Tritos Uptown, but it had a stage. And Chris Corpora, who was a musician in town, was booking bands there. So I saw like Dinosaur Jr. there. I saw Nirvana there playing with Steel Pole Bathtub, you know, before, you know, Nirvana blew up. There was just so many great bands. I know people talk about Mabel's a lot, but when we were starting out Poster Children, we couldn't get shows at Mabel's. Mabel's was great, but it was pretty metal focused at the time. So when indie rock you know, sort of alternative was happening. And then, yeah, so maybe like a band that was more kind of R.E.M.-y would be able to play at Mabel's. I feel like really early on, we didn't get into Mabel's unless it was like a weeknight or there was an out-of-town indie band that was touring and they they got a a weekday show, you Mm. know, so bands that were coming from St. Louis and going to Chicago, you know, would stop in Champaign, these cool indie bands, and then they might get a show at Mabel's. So Trios Uptown was like the place where... We could play hmm. regularly because Chris booked it and was putting together shows. And that was where we yeah, met a whole bunch of out-of-town bands. You know, you'd open for an out-of-town band or they'd open for you and then you'd trade shows with them. So I think it was Tritos Uptown. It was, it was an interesting place. It was definitely like all wooden and very echoey. I remember watching Dinosaur Jr. play from the hallway. There was a stairwell up into the space and I had to stand out in the stairwell and watch them because it was so loud. Hmm. But it was, you know, it was amazing. The other one was Chin's. So House of Chin, which was the third floor of the House of Chin. And then that was a little tiny room. There's like a digits song called Under the Christmas Fish, which is talking about this, you know, kind of weird bar. And then they, they let weird bands play to you know 10 or 15 it was room for maybe 10 15 20 30 people like that was the place i saw the flaming lips the first time it was like i'm trying to think of what year that would have been tugrick to gugrick which was a band that like andy who was later in hum was in they opened and so little tiny like it was almost like playing in a living room Hmm. those places are the ones i have fond memories of because we actually played a lot of shows there but i saw a lot of great shows at maples but it didn't feel like our home base until later it's amazing especially you know currently you're you're not living in champaign urbana but at the time you were living in champaign urbana and it's interesting to me how what used to be like the central venue location was campus town and and now it's more 
you know, we still have Campus Town to a certain extent of the Canopy Club, but it's not like you go into Campus Town and there's this venue here, this venue there. And it, even it sounds like, uh, you know, Tritos and Mabel's, th- those were less than a block away from each other. And like they're, they're they were almost but on top of each other. They were on the same block. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. They were on the same block. Yeah. So I think that currently people have a hard time envisioning what that what that kind of looked like oh and i also i'm not even thinking i didn't even mention like nature's table you know that's also right all all part of that circle of and i know i'm forgetting some so anyone uh trinos which was the place yeah near near in the same area that the the canopy club is now which used to be the thunderbird theater Uh movie theater yeah, Trinos and is yeah, like Espresso Royale was in the part of the Trinos space. Yeah, so it was all centered around campus. I, in fact, I remember we that that loft that we wrote He's My Star in and lived in in downtown Champaign. Downtown Champaign was like a ghost town at that time. Mm. It was like when, when there was no one in downtown Champaign and I remember we were already living in that loft. I think maybe like the well, I want to call them the Akak crowd, but that would have been like Moon 7 times maybe crowd were living sort of above where skin well where skins and tins used to be i think they were in that building and so there were a couple of bands in lofts and there was nothing and then i remember when we were living in that loft when the blind pig was the the first blind pig it was like they were renovating that space i remember we went in there to see the new space and it was like who's gonna come to this ghost town to see music right and it was like oh wow it it actually did all move because it used to it was all centered in campus so yeah mabel's and tritos were right in the middle of campus town and then yeah trinos and nature's table were in the sort of urbana edge of campus and that was yeah all the music there were no venues there were house parties and stuff but nobody went outside of that kind of campus area for shows there was a loft somebody else had a loft like Chris and Ward. Who else lived in that loft? I think Rick Digit lived in that loft. It was it was wherever the old News Gazette, <laughs> the new News Gazette building was. Uh, it was what was that called? Rock City. Mm. They they had shows, but it was again. It was like a weird loft kind of thing, and you you like college students wouldn't go there. That was kind of after everyone had graduated, and we were all starting to populate the weird, bombed out. Uh, downtown Champaign area huh. <laughs> whereas now I, I don't think people can even imagine it I remember sitting in my loft watching them tear down the old abandoned it was kind of like a big supermarket no that main intersection in in downtown Champaign now with all the like the hotels and everything mm. like that there was just this big abandoned supermarket kind of building right. that I know had used to have shows years before I was there like in the early 80s it was a complete empty area and yeah the change that happened over the course of 30 years was pretty amazing i'm trying to think of when the blind pig the first sort of version of the blind pig which was kind of just a small half well just one storefront and then they expanded later that would have been in the early 90s what makes a good music scene i mean i've I've thought about that a lot and definitely it felt like over the years when i lived in champagne i mean i lived there for how long did i live there i got got to Champagne in 84 and I left in 2010 20 25 26 years is that right do I have 20 yeah right? 20 uh 20 <laughs> or am, am I yes am I taking out a decade yeah. okay it wasn't 30 okay yeah yeah 26 I'm usually good at math but not when it involves 
me realizing the passage of time. Right. I tend to drop off a decade or two when I do that math in my head. It, and it definitely went in cycles. I mean, there were high points and low points. And so there was like a panel a few years ago at the Sousa Center, right? The Sousa Archives, where they talked about the history of the champagne scene from like 1970 to the present and realizing, wow, there, there was, you know, there's the 60s kind of early 70s era, you know, with Ario Speedwagon and Dan Fogelberg. And then there's the and, and what's his name? Irving Azoff, mm. right? You know, was part of that scene, you know? Yeah, in fact, our first tour, first poster children tour, we met someone who had lived in Champaign in Missoula, Montana, and she was telling us stories about Irving Azoff and all those bands. And it was like, you, the more you learn about the history, and then, yeah, just right before I showed up, there was that era with the Elvis brothers. And so you realize, oh, th- there's something about the town that had this, you know, scene and scenes that would pop up, you know, and kind of... There's something about the town in addition to the fact that, oh, it wasn't just this group of people during this few years that made this scene. It was like, oh, there's something else besides the people. The people are important, but there's something else that makes this town, makes Champaign supportive of musicians. And so the way I decoded was it was at least when I was there, it was cheap to live there. There were a lot of young people there, right, who liked to listen to music. And there was a support for the arts, right? The idea. I can't imagine our band surviving if we had lived in Chicago. And we had members of the band who were in Chicago and sometimes we would rehearse in Chicago and watching how difficult it was for them to sort of just cover their bills, find a place to rehearse. (laughs) You know, and it's like we were living in a loft for 400 bucks a month or something. And we, you know, we could, we set up a studio and rehearsal space. And because again, there was no one around at the time in downtown Champaign. It was just a great environment. And then later we were able to buy a house, you know, and pay a mortgage. Other people we knew in the music scene, yeah, they were, they were working record stores and working restaurant jobs and they were able to play in bands. So I think part of it was economic and then just having that community and having that support. I think it's, I I go to the economics of it, but then it was also people stuck around, people stayed. Mm -hmm. I went there for college, but I didn't leave. Yeah. And that was the main difference. Talking to people here in Bloomington, there's a little bit of that and there's some great places and there are great record stores in Bloomington. One of the struggles is getting people to stay in Bloomington normal, young people, people who graduate college and then they just instantly move to Chicago. And that that happened a lot in Champaign too. But I also remember people, you know, musicians and they'd leave for a while, like somebody who had lived in Champaign their whole life, right? And they're in bands and then, oh, I'm going to move to you know, in New York or Olympia or, you know, Chicago. And then, then like two years later, hey, you're back. Yep. <laughs> you know, they'd come back a lot of times too. So there's definitely something magical in that respect. But if I could bottle it and identify it, then I'd be able to, you know, be an urban planner, developer kind of person and be able to go from town to town and help them build a vibrant arts scene. What is the secret sauce and what is it that Champagne is doing well, but even more so, what do you think, and, and maybe you, you could reflect back in the day, is what could Champaign-Urbana have done better to make a more supportive music scene? I don't know. I think at some point there's just a scale. I mean, I'm thinking in terms of moving up 
to a higher level, right? That That's a more kind of like commercial rock thing. And I wasn't super interested in that. So if you think about bands that were in Chicago and Chicago based, there's an, a sort of next level and next tier. I think Champagne did fine for how big it was. And at some point you can't... <laughs> You can't escape being a central Illinois town. That's not a huge urban center. I mean, and there was there was talk, you know, of like, oh, Champaign's the next Seattle or like Asheville or, you know, North Carolina, the whole, you know, sort of merge scene or the scene in North Carolina, Chapel Hill, right? That scene, they talked about that too. I think maybe it's just scale. Like you can't become the next Seattle if you're not Seattle sized. Right. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you know, if you, in terms of that kind of thing, so I don't, I don't think Champagne did anything wrong. I don't think it did anything wrong. I'm more philosophical just about the idea of rock music or people going to see live shows and live music. You know, just my kids, I know, appreciate it, and when they've gone to shows, when I'm playing and, and performing, they'll go. But they go to live shows. You know, I've got a college age kid now, and he goes to shows occasionally. And goes to see artists live. So so I guess there's still that going on. But I also realize that the way live music... I mean, live music for me, and then, you know, buying records, that was basically my main source of cultural information and communication in my community. Right. <laughs> it was just records and shows. You know, cool indie bands touring and playing in Champagne and me getting to see them for three dollars right you know getting to see the pixies and getting to see you know dinosaur and I'm trying you know there's just a huge list of bands I saw and that was pretty much my whole life I mean and then watching TV obviously right mm -hmm. <laughs> like I said right but but it's not like I was playing a huge number of video games it's not like I was I was making you know I, I it yeah it, it's just I, I think there's a huge I'm I'm kind of coming to terms with the fact that the type of music and type of performance I'm interested in is kind of moving. I feel like my instinct is it's moving like towards the way jazz is and has been. It's this more sort of niche cultural thing mm -hmm. as opposed to being this large cultural force. I don't know if that idea of a scene doing something wrong is even the case now. It's just kind of like how many people actually do want to see live music right <laughs> that's what i question also i'm an old person right. that's the other thing is kind of like i don't you know what i know how to get a bunch of 50 something old dudes together at a show in chicago i can do that because it's my band but i don't know how to get somebody under the age of 45 you know to show up at a show <laughs> and and be part of a vibrant music scene i i'm i'm well past that perspective how do you get people to care about music as much as you care about the music that you're creating i feel like there are people that want to do that but i i i don't know if there's always for me speaking as a white cis male there's not always barriers put up for me you know I, that will be put up mm -hmm. for other people certain gatekeeping things where people can't feel safe or feel welcome in spaces and i think in general that should also be a consideration of what makes a good scene is like having those spaces that are accessible and not just you know white dudes you know which you know you <laughs> swing a cat you can hit a hit a white dude at a concert but it, it's like 
I'd love to I'd love to see more of those spaces be available. And I'm starting to think back too is like when I think back about like 1985, 86, 87, you know, just kind of those formative years where it was just like this is the most amazing scene in the world. You know, the reality was is there were probably about 30 of us. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I could collectively, you know, who went to shows and all of us were in bands, almost all of us, right? It wasn't a real huge number of people. It grew and bands from from Champagne got popular and more popular and toured the US. But the reality was is even yeah, like I said, seeing the flaming lips and it, it it's it's like there were probably fifteen or twenty people there for that that show at Chins. You know, it, it was not a huge number of people that made that scene what was so vibrant for me, you know, and changed my life. You know, it was like, oh, it's not like it was 300 or 400 people packing Mabel's at the time. Although that happened, right? When the Minutemen played Mabel's, I remember seeing that. And that was, that was amazing. There were a lot of people that was like, oh, okay. There were, I don't think there were that many people there, but there were a lot of, there were more people where it was just like, oh, okay. So there are more people in town who will go see weird music and realizing that. So, but it was still a very small group of people that made at least that changed my life and changed my perception of what I could do and, you know, supported me creatively, I guess. Right. It, it was, it was a pretty small group of people mm. and then it grew from there. So, and then it dissipated, right? Everybody got older and mm. moved away or had families. And then the new scene kind of small core group of people popped up. So maybe this goes back to what I always think about is like that, that whole year or two when kind of music that I like was considered possibly commercial it was kind of ruined everything because everybody had false expectations about what 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 could happen right a few people could get famous writing that but it was like everybody else was happy before just playing their weird little indie rock shows and jumping in a van and touring you know and then it all got messed up and perspective got lost Champagne is also a band podcast is proud to support Exile on Main Street. Exile on Main Street, located in the old train station building at 100 North Chestnut Street in downtown Champaign, has been helping to build record collections since 2004. Carrying a wide array of new and used LPs, CDs, and video games. Exile on Main Street has something for just about any music enthusiast and old school gaming devotee. Exile also hosts regular free live music shows on its stage, so be sure to check out their Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages for the up-to-date details on the next upcoming event. Open seven days a week. They can be reached by phone at 217-398-MAIN. That's 217-398-6246. Welcome back. So, Rick, what is your favorite non-musical thing or things? That would probably be movies, film. When I thought about this question, I was like, wow, do I have a favorite thing even? And it's like, oh yeah, it's movies. Mm -hmm. So that kind of ties into the TV thing, like watching television, but I also would watch huge numbers of movies on, well, VHS and then DVD. So that's for entertainment, which oh, was yeah. the 
rental place in Champaign. I think someone said once, "Is like the only people who rent more movies than you do are uh, those those people in Wolfie." That uh, there was a band and and Joe from Wolfie does film curation. I think in Austin, you know, and and has written books on you know horror movies. So, that, but but it was like yeah, definitely obsessive. Now it's a little easier, but at the time it was a little more work. Right. <laughs> I think when I first started out and, and that was, yeah, just having that sort of entertainment feeding me a constant flow of VHS and then DVDs. That was important. Yeah. So I uh, do, do you have a particular like genre of movies that you like? No, <laughs> I like, I, I, I like good movies, <laughs> right? I'm super tired of, I mean, I do like commercial films, but I am exhausted by, you know, I, I kind of agreed with the Martin Scorsese kind of, which people interpreted it as a condemnation of like Marvel films or those type of blockbuster films as being, you know, amusement park rides or whatever mm. he called them as opposed to film. And I do kind of agree with that, but I don't think, I mean, I understand the joy of seeing a spectacle, but I don't need to see people punching each other at high frame rates and things exploding. What do I call it? Punch, punch, bang, bang. You know, I don't need to see that anymore. I enjoyed it. I don't know when it was, I'm trying to think of when it was elevated. I'm pretty much a curmudgeon now about that. Like my family made me watch the latest Thor movie, whichever one that was, you know, and I'll watch that, you know, it's okay. For the most part, I guess I have a kind of classic eighties film school perspective that I'm trying to expand. Mm -hmm. So, so more diversity. I mean, I, I did watch a lot of international, what was called foreign films at right. the time, European film, but now I'm trying to expand my knowledge to real world cinema as opposed to what was called world cinema, which was basically like French movies. Oh yeah. And you can watch uh, some Swedish films and French films in addition to right. all these classic American films. So yeah, no, I don't, I don't have a specific genre. I don't like horror. Mm. I know I understand horror is an entry point for young filmmakers but I'm not particularly fond of that genre. I can tell you what I don't like. Do you have a favorite movie? What's one that's your go-to if you don't know what to watch? I do have a favorite movie, but it's not a great movie. I wouldn't call it the height of filmmaking, but it's a movie that's been a part of my life and I've enjoyed for my whole life. And I think that's pretty special. It's not just nostalgia either. So I, there are movies that I watched when I was a kid that I'll watch again and I'll like because it's nostalgic. Whereas this film, it's called What's Up Doc, which is a movie with Barbara Streisand and Ryan O'Neill from 1973. It's the movie Peter Bogdanovich directed between Last Picture Show and Paper Moon, which are also great movies. And it's a little bit like Bringing Up Baby, which is the comedy from the 1930s uh, with Katherine Hepburn and Cary Grant. It, it kind of references that. It's kind of a romantic comedy, but then also has, you know, car chases in it. It's funny. It's got, it's, it's got a whole underlying story about musicology. Brian O'Neill plays a musicologist, so there's all sorts of music jokes huh. in it. It's just a great slapstick kind of comedy that I, I'm able to watch and I've been able to watch sort of every, you know, five or 10 years and enjoy. Typically though, I like much darker films. It's not, right. <laughs> it's not typical of what I like. So anytime, like other movies that I'll go back to that I'll watch after hours, a Martin Scorsese movie, which I find hilarious. And then like, I've even had people like this guy who teaches film here 
at Illinois State University. I was like, he was like doing a Martin Scorsese kind of retrospective. I'm like, are you going to show After Hours? He's like, I haven't seen After Hours. And I said, well, I think it's funny, but my wife thinks there's something wrong with me <laughs> in that I think it's funny. I love it, but it's super dark. Mm-hmm. Typically, I'll go to something dark and depressing for rewatching that I really love. Children of Men is like one I think of oh. in the past 20 years. I'll watch that. I'll watch that anytime. It's like, I don't think other people necessarily would think of that film as something you want to watch more than once or twice. I'm just going to sound like a weird lightweight, but what is it called? What's the Liam Neeson movie where he's uh, the gray? Like, I'll watch that over and over again. Any movie with some kind of people dealing with the reality of death, but not in a massive slaughter way like these large scale films work, Mm. but it's dealing with death in an emotional, direct way. Yeah, I definitely like films like that. Huh thinking in myself like what what would be my favorite movie and i I don't know mainly i'm deep narrative but more sci-fi and metaphorical and honestly and and now i'm i'm totally blanking on anything so i'm i'm impressed you were able to pull up you were able to retrieve a movie in your head right away it's because i've I've thought about it because I've been stumped and I usually, I used to say I don't have a favorite movie. Mm. I mean, I like lots of movies and I, I like lots of different films, but I've realized now and I've spent some time thinking about it where it's like, okay, no, what's up doc is this weird, you know, it's not, it, it, it absolutely like if you watch that film, it represents nothing about me. I think in a way mm. like, I, well, I, th- I guess maybe there's some insight into me and why I like it, but it's like, I, I don't think it represents the likelihood, I would say, oh, that was a great movie. I really enjoyed it. Like the Banshees of Insurin or whatever that just came out. I mean, I enjoyed that film. Mm. Super dark. Totally about existential kind of dread right. <laughs> and dealing with with all of that. I really, really love that. That's the kind of stuff I gravitate towards, more dark, complex narratives. For some reason, What's Up Doc is something that's been universal in my life where it's just like, wow, I can watch this anytime and it brings me joy and it's worked when I was a little kid watching it as like the after school movie. They used to have movies on TV after mm-hmm. school. And I, I watched it once and I was just like, oh, I love this movie. You know, going through the VCR era and then DVD era and then the streaming era. It's like I can watch that film and see new things about it. And it, it still resonates with me. And so that to me is a magical thing is a film that works for people like a film for all ages. Right. right? But there are very few films that actually work on that level. Cause usually what happens is, is you have nostalgia. I'm watching this and I love it because I'm reliving something and how it resonated. I'm not actually watching it and enjoying it as a movie. That's great. Now like silent running is my example of that is actually when I went to college, it's like I, silent running blew my mind when I was like 10 or 11. It was like, this is the most amazing movie in the world and then they showed it on campus when i first got to college and i'm like oh i gotta go see silent running and i was just like oh i shouldn't have watched it again I, I i should have kept that magical feeling i had about it because now i'm seeing it through you know i'm seeing all the problems with it oh it's not that uh you know and i, I like ruined it right. for m- myself although i watched it again recently and it was like okay it, oh uh, no it's it's i'm getting back into it right <laughs> but i think a lot of it was nostalgia for that era of sci-fi yeah well and and i have to say um i know that it can be a little problematic but uh you know like blade runner is probably aesthetic wise is probably one of my favorite movies to um just observe and like the the way the buildings are put together the way things are lit it's just it 
it just captures the mind and that's one of my favorite movies but it's all about like the aesthetics and even the idea of well definitely an existential thing like what what is life what is existence what is someone's right to live yeah yeah that film was was amazing because i'm and, and that's probably one of the earliest examples i remember where it was like when i watched that film it was like oh and it, it kind of happened we, with me with music too where it was like but blade runner was probably that moment where it was like oh all I've heard about this movie was is that it's a flop. It's not a good Harrison Ford. So this would have been, you know, like the 1982 or 83 perspective, right? right? And it's like, it's a flop. The first time I saw it would have been probably on campus when I first got to school before everybody had a VCR. They, they do, they'd show films on the weekend and it was like, and watching that film and it was like, wow, this is an amazing film, but everything I've heard about it is, is that it's a failure. And then realizing, oh, okay, just because something wasn't popular doesn't mean it wasn't good. And it was like that, that to me, that, that film represented that, that break where it's like, oh, okay, I, I need to make sure that I, I do some deeper work here and research. You know, it's like just because somebody's, you know, something's not commercially successful does not mean it's not good. It's like you can dig around and find films that are amazing. And, it, and, and time is, you know, proven that Blade Runner is a great film, but it, you know, when it came out, it was just like, oh, this is this is a mess. Yeah. You know, it's like this is a failure, and it's like you watch and you go, what were people thinking? You know, and it's like why, like why did no one see how great this was? And it was oh, it was just the wrong time. Yeah, and too much you know story around it. Yeah, it's definitely a profound moment where you realize, oh, okay, the mainstream isn't always right. Right. Well, I'm, yeah, I'm definitely finding that out more more often than not, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's obvious now, right? It's like when you first realize that as a kid, you're just like, oh, wait a minute. And a lot of people never realize right. it. Yeah. And then you veer off into the world of, yeah, oh, you're listening to weird music and you're watching weird mu- movies and you can't talk to anybody at a party. You can't talk to normal people at a at a normal person party, right? You got to find your weird group of friends. Yeah, and unfortunately, the way that I find my weird group of friends is I interview them on a podcast because that that seems the most socially <laughs> exactly. acceptable way for me to communicate with people. <laughs> uh, exactly, and that's that's what I always say is like, oh, it's to me the reason why I started playing in a band was is that I could I could communicate it was a different way I could communicate with people because I obviously could not do it in a direct way like unfortunately it involves me yelling and playing a very loud guitar right and so, oh that's how I'm going to communicate with people it worked for me it definitely helped me it's just kind of like oh that's what the creative process is that's why we do all this stuff is like oh I think of it as a broken communication mechanism it's like oh I'm going <laughs> to I I can't communicate in this direct way I've found this other weird bypass that i can use and i'm just going to keep doing it for the rest of my life (laughs) rick thank you so much for being on the show telling me all about your song he's my star some of the early beginnings of songwriting with poster children you know your favorite music venues and your thoughts on what makes a good music community and your favorite non-musical thing and i really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me over the interwebs over zoom and (laughs) i really do appreciate it so very much thank you thanks this was great i really enjoyed it and thanks for doing this just in general the podcast not not just talking to me but in general the podcast in general it's a good thing you're doing
Thank you for listening to Champagne is Also a Band podcast. This is Rick Valentin reminding you, great music is out there. Go find it where you live. I don't listen back and then try to figure out what those words are. That's a wrap. Champagne is also a band. You almost have an NPR voice. It's so good. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, David Hasselhoff has the same problem we do. uh, And I would like it if you made me more coherent.